0: Preaching from a book I didn't even bring uh, actually we sold out I believe I don't even know if we have any left but this book came out in October of 2019 it's called the Jesus principles many of my friends say it's the best book I ever wrote um, and I'm gonna be preaching out of that I have this book which has been released number one on the Holy Spirit Uh, For the first two weeks it came out. It just came out uh, literally about two weeks ago. And uh, this is The Purpose, Power, and Process of Prophetic Ministry. And this book has a very, very strong, what we would call ecclesiology or local church framework for prophecy. It's a really, really important book, especially in this day and age of rabid social media prophets with no accountability, no guardrails dropping words and causing confusion and this book is so important so I would encourage you to get it I also brought three of my mini books one is understanding the wineskin of the kingdom the second one is 25 things you've never heard in your church and the third is um, uh, the divided gospel why we're in the mess we're in in America it's because we separated the gospel from the kingdom and it resulted in hyper uh, prosperity messages and narcissism, a lot of different things. Those are three seminars I've done that have almost felt like nuclear bombs were being dropped on churches and conferences. And the Lord told me, I want you to make a book out of each of those seminars. So there's three mini books in the back. This book, there's 13 books altogether. You go to my name, Joseph Matera, M A T T E R A. org. And you'll see a Leadership Institute. You could subscribe for a free article every week. 13 books and many, many articles, probably 2,000 articles. So um, I hope that's a blessing. And see, I remembered. I got you. Okay. All right. In Jesus' name, bless the word. Okay. So. as I said, the, this is a snippet from my book, The Jesus Principles. You get it on Amazon, uh, go to Kindle, whatever. But, um, and a subtitle could be How Jesus Released Human Potential. So, Lord, we pray that you would bless this, help us to really understand these truths. Amen. Okay, so first and foremost, one of the last things Jesus said before he ascended into heaven, was found in Matthew 28. And we see him in verse 18, he said, All power, not some, all power, has been given to me in heaven and on earth, that is in the visible and invisible realm. All power has been given to me. Therefore, in other words, we have to do something about that. And what did he tell us to do? He said, go make disciples of the nations. Somebody say, go make disciples. disciples. And, you know, if you have only a few minutes left on the earth, the last thing you're going to say is some of the most important things, right? So, um, you know, I was in New York City during 9-11, and I was in the Empire State Building when the planes hit the uh, Twin Towers. I could tell you stories about that day, crazy day. But can you imagine you were in one of those two planes and you knew it was hijacked, you knew it was heading for the Twin Towers? And we have reports of many people who took cell phones and they called their loved ones. Do you think anybody would have said, Hey, how are the Yankees doing? (laughs) How do you think the Seahawks are going to do this Sunday? Right? Some of the things we think are so important really are not that important. When we're facing eternity, when we're facing reality, and of course, they would probably just say, hey, I love you. Tell my kids I love them, or forgive me, or whatever it is, just really important words. Well, the last words of Jesus before he ascended into heaven were something he wanted to leave with us, and that is, go make disciples. Somebody say, go make disciples. That was in the imperative form in the Greek, meaning it's a command, it's not an, op- an option. And a disciple is somebody who sits under somebody else. It comes from the word, or the word discipline comes from that, or they're connected, there's a connotation there. And so it implies discipline, it implies focus, it implies hard work. And so making disciples is not easy, either for the discipler or the disciplee. It's, it's hard work. It takes a lot of focus and energy and prioritizing. And you would think because it was the last words of Jesus that the whole church would be doing this. But I would say most churches don't even know what it is. Um, This church, thankfully, has a foundation of discipleship and forms of it and methods of it. And thank God, your new pastor is burning inside with this goal of making disciples. And the importance of this cannot be overstated. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 3 that our works can be likened unto building with wood, hay, stubble, Right? And, man, you could fill a lot of barns. You could fill hundreds of thousands of acres with wood, hay, and stubble. But what happens? It'll just go up in smoke in one moment. And, unfortunately, we've seen many churches or many so-called Christ followers just fall off, even in the last year and a half. But if we're going to build our works and our life upon silver and gold and precious metals and diamonds that are only, like gold is refined in the fire, it's not destroyed. Well, that's going to be the people who remain. And churches that are built on discipleship will remain, no matter how much fire comes. I remember one time, uh, a guy I knew who was driving, and uh, this guy said to him, Hey, you see that church? They have 10,000 people, and... They've only been around for six years. And this guy I know said something so wise. He said, yeah, but the fire hasn't hit yet. And the only ones who are going to remain are the disciples, basically. And so Jesus is so smart. He's a wise master builder. He knew that the only way the pouring out of his blood His death, burial, and resurrection his 33 incarnational years, and everything he put into it would would last would be a church built on people who make disciples, and those disciples make disciples. He knew if it was built on something else, it would not last. It would not perpetuate his name. And that's why he said that in his final words. So he says, go into all the world. Of course, he was speaking to Jewish people, so... We have to understand the historical context here. So he's speaking to people who are only used to uh, uh, Yahweh being a covenantal God with one nation and one ethnic people. And so what Jesus was doing was he's saying, I want you to go to the people groups that do not have a covenant with Yahweh, who are not in covenant with my father. I want you to go to these pagans. I want you to go to these heathen nations that are polytheistic, that is to say they worship many gods, numerous gods. They have many different cults and some witchcraft, and there's druids, and there's this, there's that, and the other thing, and there are many gods, and there's a god of forests, of mountains, of rivers. I want you to go to those people who don't understand and believe in the one true God, and I want you to make them disciples. And now we have a focus on bringing in great crowds in the world uh, you know you have many, many mega churches I remember when I first came to Christ there was only 20 churches in America that had about a thousand people evangelical churches and now I mean in Atlanta alone there's 40 churches with over 10,000 people in one city and uh, you have churches that over 50,000 maybe a hundred thousand but Notice Jesus didn't say, I want you to win souls. He said, I want you to make disciples. The goal should never be just bringing in crowds. I could offer everybody a free pizza and fill up a building. You know, I I learned uh, a while ago, if you really want to fill a conference up, you want to have a big crowd, just promise everyone a personal prophecy and give them pizza, and you'll have a lot of people. (laughs) You know? Uh, Big crowds do not impress Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Luke 14, when he saw a big crowd, he didn't say, oh, wow, I'm so honored. I'm delighted you're here. He said, if you don't hate your father, your mother, your wife, and your own life, you cannot be my disciple. How's that for seeker-sensitive preaching? (laughs) Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Somebody. I've got to behave myself. You don't know me good enough yet. So Jesus was interested in people who would totally lay down their life for him. And so he wanted to build his life upon that. But he didn't want it to be limited to Israel. He wanted it to be all nations. Like he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, he said, After the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will speak in tongues. Amen. What Bible are you reading? He says, after, he said, you will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, meaning, Yeah, you can speak in tongues, but that's not the point of Pentecost. The point is to have gospel permeation, first in your own city and culture, Jerusalem, then in Judea, in your region, every church should be apostolic. It should affect their city, but then affect their region. Then he said Samaria, which would be a people group that is alien to yours, similar, but adverse, and then to the ends of the earth, meaning to even those who have no clue what you're talking about. And so the gospel is supposed to be carried by missional people, people on mission, people who want to spread the gospel. But the way to do it is not just giving them a, you know, a quick sinner's prayer and, and leaving them alone, but it's now discipling them. And that's what this is all about. So Jesus said, I want you to make disciples. I've got all power in heaven and earth over the principalities and powers, both invisible and the visible. I'm the king of kings. That means I'm the mayor of every mayor, the governor of every governor, the president of every president, the CEO of every CEO, the prime minister of every prime minister. I am the king of kings. You couldn't get a more political charge statement than that. And he said, because I have all power, not some, now, this is what I want you to do, make disciples. He's backing you up. He's got your back. You know, people will think, well, you know, he's in heaven, and the focus is on getting slain in the Spirit, getting a word, having angel visitations. I had one guy come up to me and said, hey, if you want, I could arrange for you to be, have a visitation in heaven. You could, jo- you could actually be in heaven. I said, how? Well, there's some on Facebook. I said, no, thank you, my friend. You have all these people with these mystical experiences and I don't see any fruit. God could care less how many times you've been slain in the spirit. I just want you to understand that. He cares what you're going to do when you get up. And if you're not making disciples, it's not doing what God said in his final words. Jesus said he's called us to bear much fruit. Instead, we are I, I don't, boy, I, I'm not going to say it, forget about it, but... He's called us to bear much fruit, put it that way. And we have to bear fruit by doing what he said. So he said to make disciples, and we already talked about what that is, but we have confusion right now in how that is to be done. First, you have people who teach that making disciples has to do with discipling whole nations, meaning a geopolitical nation. And we do see instances in church history where whole people groups did get baptized on the same day. But what he's talking about is, I'm calling you to go to these people groups or nations that do not know God, and in order for them to be discipled, he said this, they have to, what, verse 19 and then 20, says, Baptizing them. Somebody say baptizing them in the name of the Father, Holy uh, name of the Father of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then he says, teaching them to do whatsoever I've called you to do or what I've commanded you. So when we look at this, we see that in order to affect a whole people group, they have to leave their gods. They have to leave their baggage, they have to leave their identity, they have to leave any cultural artifacts that are antithetical or against the gospel, against the kingdom of God. They have to forsake that, and how do they forsake that? The first thing is they have to be water baptized. Water baptism is a rite of passage from the world to the kingdom. It's leaving your old life, your old gods, your old habit patterns, and cultural things that are sinful, and you're coming into the community of Jesus. In other words, it is impossible to make disciples without the local church. What Jesus is saying is you make these people groups, these ethnic groups, you have them leave their identity by joining the church. So in those days, and in even many nations of the world today, a person is not even looked at as a Christian unless they're water baptized. So in water baptism, we see people identify when they go under the water with the death and the burial of Christ. When they come up, come up out of the water, they're identifying with the resurrection of Christ. But we also know that it's not just identifying with Jesus Christ, but it also tells us that when we come to Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, it teaches us how we are all baptized into one body. How many know the Christ, that Christ is the head and the church is his body? We are the neck down. So when you're water baptized, that is your initiation into joining the church. So he's saying that, Even before the day of Pentecost, he was already talking about the church. He was talking about how there is a community coming that is so inextricably connected to me that you cannot make them my followers unless you cannot make the pagans my followers unless they join this community. And then after they join the community, then he said, teaching them. So once they're baptized, that's not all there is because then it's a lifestyle of teaching. And so we see here many uh, parachurch ministries and people, they think that because Jesus walked with 12 before the church was born, uh, that uh, he was able to make disciples outside of the church. And you got people trying to make disciples outside of the local church. But Jesus always had the church in mind as we see this demand to baptize people. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said something in his great book, The Cost of Discipleship, um, how he uh, termed cheap grace, the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living in any... And it is a warning that continues to be valid today, basically. So what we see here is the same issues we've seen for hundreds and maybe 2,000 years. People want to have everything God offers without doing what God says. And that's why we need to have, as a prerequisite, biblical discipleship. So Jesus always had the church in mind when he called the 12. He called them into a community. And then there were 70 as well, we see in Luke chapter 10. So in a sense, there was already a church functioning before the day of Pentecost. I don't know if you ever heard that before, but there was a prototype or an embryonic form of the church. And we see in Matthew 16 how Jesus told the 12, even before the day of Pentecost, when the church was born officially, He said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. See, he was talking about the church. So you can argue that the 12 and then the 70 were already the formation of the church before Pentecost. He was never, ever attempting to disciple anybody outside of the church. And we have to understand that the local church is front and center of God's plan and purpose in the world today. And so we see that this uh, is a mistake today that people are trying to detach Jesus and the church. They say, I love Jesus. Even Lecrae recently said, I love Jesus, but I'm not churchy. I'm not sure what he meant by that. But you have about 40 million people in this country who don't go to church who claim to be following Jesus. And uh, we don't see that in Scripture. And so the following are some principles Jesus used for releasing purpose in people's lives. And this is so important. And before I get into this, I just want want to say something. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He called them to a way of life. The American church has taken the gospel and turned it into an enterprise. The Roman church took the gospel and turned it into an institution. Jesus called it a way. And that's what the uh, Christ followers were called, people who walked in the way throughout the book of Acts. You could see it at least three or four times. So it was always looked at as a way of life. So what I'm about to talk about cannot be distance from your personal life, from your lifestyle. You can't separate Sunday from Monday from from the church place, from the workplace. It's a lifestyle. Otherwise, it's not true discipleship. How many understand what I'm saying? So it's a way, and it's the way, the truth, and the life. So number one, we see how Jesus processed people, he said in Mark 1:17, follow me and I will make you, in the Greek, to become. I will make you to become fishers of men. Wow, that is a mouthful. He was inviting them to a process. It was a way of life, but it was a journey that began somewhere and was heading somewhere, but it meant that they weren't ready for what they were being formed and shaped for. And many of us, when we come to Christ, we think that, you know, because we have a lot of zeal, we're ready for whatever God says. Uh, Many times we may even get a prophetic word and we think that we're supposed to act on it right away. And many times even prophets miss it when they give words. Sometimes when they give time and seasons or they give dates, a lot of times, probably most of the time, they make mistakes with their dates. And uh, and so, what Jesus was saying is, I want you to come into a process of walking with me. I found a long time ago, when I came to Christ in 1978, that even though I was saved instantly, and I was just as saved as somebody who was saved for 50 years, and if I was to die at that moment, I'd go to heaven. I was not yet sanctified. I was saved, but not yet sanctified. I was saved, but my emotions and my mind and my thinking didn't catch up yet with my renewed and born-again spirit. And so that is really where the journey is. It's, it's emotional health. It's understanding how to think God's thoughts after him. It's thinking like God. It's thinking like God's Word. It's one thing to get into the Word, but the Word's got to get into you. And it's a lifetime of a process of changing our thinking from stinking thinking to thinking like God. And and so we see this journey beginning with all of us. And when we are making disciples, we have to understand that we're beginning a process with somebody. We can't promise them after two months it's over, after three months it's over. Uh, I can't tell you in three years you're totally ready. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to take because you have people who are saved for 50 years, but they repeated their first year 50 times. They're still in the same place they were the first year they were born again because they never yielded to God. And they're still emotional infants and they're still spiritual infants. One of the problems we have in the charismatic church is we elevate people who are great preachers and great prophets and great singers and worshipers, but their personal life is a total disaster. They're broken on the inside. They've never allowed God to deal with them. They've never yielded to the fires of holiness. They don't even have a prayer life. A lot of worship leaders I know don't even worship on their own. They don't even... I, one guy, he, he made a living, uh, you know, uh, doing... Um, a certain uh, theater and uh, acts on stage and uh, you know he do I don't want to mention what he did in case he listens but um, you know he would perform put it this way and uh, you know his wife said to me he has no prayer life so I said to him do you pray read the Bible he said yeah when, when I perform on stage I'm quoting the Bible and uh, you know it's almost like what so, you know, you could be very gifted. That doesn't mean you're a man of God or a woman of God. You could have an incredible healing ministry. It doesn't mean that you're walking with God, right? And so we're invited by God to begin a journey, a process. Follow me. He didn't say follow the institution. He didn't say be religious. He said follow me. So right there, it's Jesus-centered It's focused on that person. He said, follow me, and as you continue to follow him, I will make you to become a fisher of men. Wow. And so we're invited by God to come into a process, and when we disciple somebody, we're inviting them to begin a journey with us. And the process in God's mind is more important than the end result. Because it's in the process that he shapes us. And what we have to understand is when we are helping somebody in their process, we're literally helping ourselves more than we're helping them. Because the teacher always learns more than the student. I remember reading about a guy, um, the apostle of bleeding feet, Sadhu Sundar Singh from India. And uh, he was somewhere in the Himalayas. And he was almost freezing to death. He had no shoes on or anything. And he was going to preach somewhere. And he saw a man dying in the snow. And he uh, stopped. And he picked up the guy. And he started carrying the guy, even though he was almost frozen to death himself. And because of the exertion of carrying this guy, it created more body heat. Plus, the body heat of the man he was carrying was mingling with his body heat. Next thing you know, he not only saved that man's life, he saved his own life. When you disciple others, you're literally pouring into yourself. Because the grace of God, the power of God, the spirit of God is working through you. Out of the love of God that you have for that person. And the things that God is telling you to say to that person can apply to you. Many times I'm helping someone else and I'm figuring out my own problems. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Sometimes when I'm preaching, I get the greatest revelation. I should write a book every time I finish preaching. People think, oh man, he's an expert. I didn't know it either until I started <laughs> preaching. The Holy Ghost <laughs> told me to say it, right? Uh, I got get insights from the Word of God when I'm preaching that I never had privately. It reminds me of when Jesus was ministering to the woman at the well. And... Uh, they came with a McDonald's hamburger and they said, Master, eat. Some of you looking at me puzzled. No, there wasn't a McDonald's 2,000 years ago. I'm just trying to make it uh, contemporary. But they came with food and he said, no. He said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And they were wondering, did someone else bring him food? And then Jesus said, no, 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 no. My meat is to do. The will of Him who sent me. You have so many self centered, narcissistic, I mean my Christians going to church just so they could feel something and get something and receive something. And that's okay if you're a new Christian or you're unsaved or whatever, you gotta get help and all that. You have others who've been in the church for 20, 30 years and they still have that attitude. You have people going from church to church saying, I'm not getting fed, I'm not getting fed. You could sit under the greatest preacher and teacher that the world has ever seen and still not get fed if you're not applying the word. I have found that after about a year, if you're in a church, if you don't volunteer, you will probably stop getting fed. New Christians stop growing if they don't volunteer within six months to a year because it comes to a point where getting fed is going to come by serving and helping other people. Every one of you should be making a disciple. If you are not, the person you're hurting is yourself. Because A, you're not obeying the last commands of Jesus, and B, there's so much grace in you that you don't even know you have that is not coming out because you're not utilizing it. And so if everybody in this church made one disciple in the next year, you would double in size, not with wood, hay, stubble, and straw, but with precious metals and diamonds and gold. Can you imagine the kind of church you will have in a year if everyone informally started walking with one person, taking them under their wing, and began, under the church's direction and auspices, began to uh, disciple? And there's programs already available. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just jump into one of them, and that'll give you what you need to start that relationship. And so it's a process. Follow me. And then he said, I will make you to become, what? Fishers of men. What is a fisher of men? Fisher of men is not just somebody called to full-time church ministry. Every one of you are called to have influence in this world. Why wouldn't God want his children to have the most influence in the world? Why shouldn't the greatest politicians in the world be Christians, the greatest economists be Christians, the greatest surgeons, the greatest architects, the greatest plumbers, the greatest civil servants, the greatest military, the greatest police officers, the greatest athletes, they should all be Imagine If you're a Christ follower and you have a platform, Why shouldn't you be the best at it? Fisher of men just means that you have influence. It means that people, humans, follow you. That you're able to catch them. You're able to get them to do what you're doing and to believe what you believe. And so the ultimate of discipleship is to create another disciple maker. Another person who's going to reproduce what you did. So... Unfortunately, hardly anybody makes disciples, so the first generation is not strong in the body of Christ. But even less are those who make disciples who make other disciples. Can you imagine if every disciple you made, you trained to disciple somebody else, what would happen? Wow. Exponential growth with true Christ followers. What a revolution would take place in this country, in this world. The hope of this country is not an election. The hope is a fire-baptized, spirit-filled church and people that create a movement of disciple-making that will not kowtow to the left, to the right, to the middle, to this, to that, that will preach the Word of God uh, uh, unfiltered, and that will stand up and have a lifestyle, a biblical Christ-following, that nobody, nobody would be able to take from them because God is the one who gave it to them. Can you imagine having a church that becomes a movement of disciple-making? My God, and I just feel that God wants this church to become that kind of church. You're already on your way. And so he wanted them to be fishes of men. And part of that is to speak into people that which they don't even know about themselves. Do you think Peter woke up one day when he was 10 or 12 and said, you know what? There's going to be a Bible written about me. Can you imagine Peter thinking in 2,000 years, we'll have popes after me. 2,000 years, there's going to be people preaching about me. He was just an ordinary fisherman. He didn't know anything was going to happen with his life, right? Right. When you are making a disciple, you're actually seeing something about them that they can't even see themselves. You are speaking in their life something that they are not able to see because their life has been so muddied with other negative words, maybe the way they were brought up, maybe they're in systemic poverty and generational patterns of of curses and witchcraft or confusion or father abandonment or uh, abuse, Or they have an orphan spirit and have all these spirits of rejection and all they hear is negative things. All we hear on on the news is negative. So they're in all this. You think they knew who they were? Do you you think they know what they're called to, to be? No, of course not. They need someone who's already broken through into the light on the other side to see their heart, to sense what God is saying about them and to call it out of them and to walk with them. You're in the light. You have something they don't have. You need to pull them out of the darkness and walk with them and even tell them who they are in Christ. What a powerful privilege that is. Isn't that a privilege? I mean, we came into a a community called Sunset Park. That was one of the most at-risk communities in the country. Abandoned buildings everywhere. Uh, Gang violence everywhere. I remember sharing the gospel on 49th Street and Fifth Avenue, and there was a kid, uh, I forgot his name, but he was 12 years old, and he had a shotgun shooting at a rival gang, and I was like two feet away from him. And it was so common that one guy in the line of fire was fixing his car, and he just said, put that, he cussed, away. He didn't even duck and go, ah, he's used to it. And, you know, we, I mean, I can't, I I could tell you so many stories of what happened, but we started preaching the gospel there, and it was so much witchcraft. I remember doing over 300 deliverances a year. I remember seeing people turn into snakes on the floor, not physically, but slithering supernaturally like a human cannot, Uh, going into haunted houses and casting demons out and and changing the atmosphere, closing 37 blocks every summer, um, showing the cross and the switchblade and preaching and seeing whole blocks come to Christ, fasting and praying and saying, if I don't see revival, I'm going to die, seeing 500 kids coming into buildings every week with many school buses and volunteers preaching the gospel to them for 18 years we had 3 to 500 kids bust in and uh, we shared the gospel after about 12 years we saw that whole community transformed cycles of poverty broken the gang members either repented got killed or got arrested Crime went down, no more abandoned buildings. And without gentrification, without the poor people being pushed out, with the same ethnic groups in the community, we saw the whole community change within 12 to 15 years. We saw the power of the gospel doesn't just lift individual sinners, but whole communities. Because the kingdom of God doesn't just deal with individual sin, but with systemic sin. And so this is the power But let me tell you, when these kids came into the church, I couldn't just give them a good sermon. They came from broken families. Eighty-five percent of the families were broken. Five kids in a family, each one with a different last name. And these young men, I never forget seeing their faces coming in with a spirit of rejection, you know, walking in all tough, but I knew why they were walking like that. Because they had a veneer of trying to act tough to protect themselves. I know I was a street fighter. I, I I was in a lot of crazy stuff before I was a Christian. Believe me. So I recognized all that. But I saw the power of the gospel. And I couldn't tell them after they came to Christ on one of those street meetings. Okay, come back next Sunday. No. We had a walk with them. And... When they came to Christ, I'll tell you, Let me. T- one of the most powerful things that ever transformed a life was we would just hug. I'd hug one of these young men, tell them I loved him. Never had a man affirming him, believing in him, telling him that God had a plan and a purpose and a call. Seeing them melt Gang members' hearts melting. They're gang members who would be willing to die for me because they never had a man telling them God had a plan for their life. And one of the greatest privileges, probably the greatest privilege I ever had, was when I realized at some point when we started the church, I wasn't a preacher, I was a surrogate father where more than half the men called me poppy. Half the women called my, I'm, half, half of the people also called my wife mom. And some of them we took in our house. Some actually slept in the same room as Jason and became great leaders in our city and planted churches because it's a way of life. Discipleship will cost you everything if you're really going to do it and so we saw one of the worst neighborhoods in America transformed you could see anything change no matter what kind of challenge what kind of psychological systemic economic political poverty we're in the gospel is more than enough but God Depends on you to walk with people and to make disciples. How many here would be willing to do that? It'll cost you everything. If you're willing to do that, I want you to stand up. If you're willing to do that, I'd like you to take another step and walk up here. Some of you may even need discipleship before you make disciples, and that's fine. You talk to one of your elders or pastors. But God has a special call upon this church that is mighty. And I believe you got the right pastor and leaders to to walk this out with you. Pastor Ben is no superficial propagator of monikers. He understands what it takes And so if you're serious about this, you got the right man right there and the right leaders surrounding him. I feel the Holy Ghost in this place right now. Why don't we just put our hands up and let's just begin to pray. Let's surrender right now to God and worship you, Jesus. We praise you. Come on, just start calling upon God. Ask him to give you a father's, a shepherd's heart. For his kids for the lost and for the saved there are many orphans that are in the church I feel that in the Holy Ghost right now there are orphans they're born again but they still have an orphan spirit because they have never been fathered or mothered. they'd never had someone receive them and not even Jesus began a minister he didn't dare minister until he came up out of the waters of baptism and he heard the voice of his Father in heaven say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The Father told Jesus, I am well pleased with you. Before Jesus preached, before Jesus healed, before Jesus cast out demons, before Jesus began his ministry, he heard that affirming voice, the affirmation of his father. He didn't love Jesus because he did something. He loved Jesus because of who he was. He loved Jesus because of his relationship. He loved Jesus because he already had that understanding of Father, Son. We need to stop loving people who could serve our agenda. We need to stop using people. We need to stop objectifying people. We need to stop just being with people because we think they could add something to us. God so loved the world that he gave his son. That includes the homeless, the broken, the destitute, the prostitute, or the conniving politician who's lost in his own soul and knows it and would be open if someone would have the nerve to not care about playing political games and be honest and speak the truth to him or her. so the father said I love you you're my beloved son I'm well pleased even before he went to the cross people are desperate for words of affirmation and I found that just one hug Holy Ghost hug could break spirits of rejection often spirit and begin the journey with people that'll transform their life. Immediately after Jesus had that experience with the Father, he was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And the first thing the devil did was to undo, to try to undo what the Father just did. The Father said, you are my beloved son. Satan said, if you are the Son of God, The Father said, I'm well pleased, even before you did anything. Satan said, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. Meaning, earn my love. Earn the love of the Father. Prove you are a son by performing a miracle. When you make a disciple, they have to know that you love them unconditionally. Accept them the way they are. Doesn't mean you're not tough. Doesn't mean you don't have tough love. Doesn't mean you don't correct them and try to straighten them out. if they waste your time, they don't want to, if they're not serious, then you go on to somebody else, of course. But they have to know that you love them unconditionally. And I believe you guys really want that. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.